Welcome back to season two of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. Today, I'm talking to Professor Tim Spector about how our understanding of the gut biome, the microbes in our gut, is revolutionising our understanding of food, diet and disease. It turns out that 70% of our immune cells are actually in our gut. So how our microbes interact with these immune cells has a major impact on how effective our bodies are at staying healthy and at fighting infections and illnesses. And in his recently published book, Food for Life, The New Science of Eating Well, Tim reveals what we should eat to optimise our gut biome and health. But before we get to Tim's interview, if you enjoy this podcast and would like to find out more, you can sign up to my Substack account, which is liztucker.substack.com. Go to my podcast website at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. And if you'd like to financially support the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this. So even a small amount a month makes a huge difference. And you can provide support at patreon.com slash what your GP doesn't tell you or via my website, which, as I mentioned, is what your GP doesn't tell you dot com. Many thanks. And now back to the interview with Tim. Professor Tim Spector is a professor in genetic epidemiology at King's College London, and he's also one of the founders of a personalised nutrition company called Zoe. Here's Tim's interview. So, Tim, thanks very much indeed for joining the podcast this morning. It's a pleasure. I think a good place to start, Tim, is why the gut biome is so important for our health. Well, we're only scraping the surface of what the gut biome really does, and our knowledge has increased massively in the last five to 10 years. The best way to think about it is it's like we've discovered a new organ in our bodies. It's a virtual organ because these microbes, these trillions of microbes live in our, mostly in our lower intestine, the colon. They should be considered like a whole series of mini pharmacies. So they're converting the food we eat as a sort of raw substrate into very refined chemicals that they then send all around our body to keep it working properly. And one of the key cells they interact with in our body are the immune cells. 70% of our immune system is actually in our gut. On the lining of the gut, where these microbe chemicals interact with the immune cells, and that keeps them primed perfectly so that they are good at fighting infections and fighting viruses but not overreacting and causing food allergy and inflammation, autoimmune disease. And they're also repairing the body. So they're protecting against rapid aging by mopping up damaged cells. They're also uh, protecting us against cancers as a sort of surveillance system. And that's in addition to what we knew already, that it, it breaks down our food, it extracts the nutrients and neurochemicals that also go to the brain control our appetite, our mood, our body weight, our metabolism, and then can affect how our sugar peaks, our insulin, all these kind of things. So it's pretty crucial. We can't survive without it. So given Tim that it's so crucial, why do you think it's taken us so long to understand the importance that our gut biome plays? I think we lack the technology. And I guess we were also a bit arrogant. So doctors thought they knew it all. We thought we knew how the gut worked. And it wasn't until we had the genetic revolution 
that we could actually see beyond just what we could see with a microscope and, and see the thousands of different species there and, the, and all the different genes producing things. So it's a mixture of our continual hubris of being human, think we understand the human body, plus the lack of technology. Uh, but now that technology is there and these tests are now becoming routine. It should just be like getting a, a blood test soon or getting your blood pressure measured to measure your gut health. So this gap in understanding about the role or the importance, if you like, of our gut biome, what impact has that had on our understanding of what we can eat or what we should eat? It's a major change in how we view food, because previously, if you sort of ignore the gut microbiome, we've thought of food very wrongly as fuel, like our body is a furnace and that we just put the fuel in, we burn it and a bit of waste comes out and it's completely ignored this incredible interaction between the chemicals in the food and the microbes that produce other chemicals that then have these massive impacts on our body. And it also explains a lot of things we got wrong about food. Ideas, all calories are equal. They're not because our microbes deal with identical calorie foods in different ways and have different impacts on the body. I think it's changed our mind also about macronutrients we had this reductionist view of nutrition that it was just about calories and carbohydrates and fats. Much more important is to drill down into the detail and realize they're good and bad in all of these categories. And they affect the way our microbes then interact with our body. So if you try and eat to improve your gut health, you really are going to eat in a very healthy way. And one of the interesting things is the huge variability. I mean, you make the point that we share over 99.7% of our genes but we only share 25% of our gut microbes. So there's huge diversity from person to person. That's right. And I've been studying twins for 30 years and identical twins of half that group and been looking for what reason there was that identical twins often get different diseases or different cancers or one gets overweight and the other one's skinny. And I couldn't find it for years and years. I was looking until I came across the gut microbiome. It's the one thing that identical twins don't share is their gut microbes. So they are producing different chemicals in their body. So yes, their genes are identical, they're clones, but it means that when they eat identical foods, they will produce different chemicals from it and have a different response. And I think this is really key to all of our individuality, which is much more than would be suggested just by our genes. So I've you know moved full circle from being a rather genetic determinist to realizing that the microbiome has opened up this idea that we can all really modify a lot of our health and our well-being by focusing on how we can change our gut microbes. And that's predominantly through our food choices. So we may have more control about our destiny than we've previously thought. Absolutely. Yes. So I've changed totally. So I'm now much more optimistic than I was in the days of believing that the only thing that was important was who your parents were and you couldn't change them. The other interesting thing, Tim, is how people with certain diseases, such as multiple sclerosis, seem to have different gut biomes. Yes, we did this a few years ago. We looked at all our twins and looked at their gut microbes and compared it to sort of how many complaints or diseases they had. And nearly everyone after the age of 40 has got some uh, medical problem. That's depressing. But there was a, a clear gradient that the more diseases, chronic problems you had, the worse the state of your gut microbiome. 
very rare to find any disease where they look the same as the control healthy group for the same age. So some of this is the effect of the disease on the gut microbes. And the other is the potential that the microbes have to cause the disease. So it's it's hard to sort that out in human studies. And we believe it's a bit of both because many diseases, particularly autoimmune diseases, things like rheumatoid arthritis or colitis or thyroiditis, they have a level of inflammation, stress in the body. And that can be both caused by microbes, but also can mean that only certain microbes live in your gut if it's inflamed because they like that environment and some of the healthy ones don't like it. So we do change our gut microbiome quite a lot when we get unwell. That's why this picture is difficult and people can get into a bit of a vicious circle. If the disease also affects how they eat and they're less hungry, they're not eating properly, they can accentuate it. And so realize that potentially the, the gut and the gut are at the heart of many diseases, I think is is really important. And we're seeing this more and more even in cancers. But it does suggest if there is this difference in gut biomes in certain diseases, that potentially if we were able to change their gut biomes, that might offer some sort of potential in helping those patients. Absolutely, yes. And I think cancer is leading the way here. And they've done some things like a poo transplant, faecal transplants from people who've responded well to drugs and lived and given them to people who failed those drugs initially. So they've had that the stool sample basically changed. It saved those patients and they've then been able to respond to the drug. So I think that's an extreme example. But if, if you take that logically further, it, it does suggest that manipulating the gut microbiome can well help people. And ulcerative colitis is another example where it has been shown to work. One in five people get a total remission from their disease if they get a transplant from a healthy donor, which is about the same success rate as you get with really expensive modern biologic drugs. I think there was a study, Tim, with chemotherapy patients storing their gut microbes and doing so enabled their white blood cell count to go up much quicker again. Yes, it's called autotransplant, and it's routinely done in a number of the big American cancer hospitals. It's not done in the UK, sadly. You know, when you're at your weakest, and your immune system's at your weakest, you do need help. And so getting your gut, old gut microbes back before they were damaged by all the drugs makes absolute sense. And one of the other things I was interested to read in the book, Tim, you mentioned, and you mentioned at the start of the interview, how our gut microbes can influence how easily we gain weight, and that some of us may have a parasite, which is called a blastocystis, living inside us that helps keep us thin. 25% of us in the UK have this parasite. Yes, I love the parasite because I've got it. And I've no idea where it came from and why it's chosen me as its host and not other people. And it's associated with lower internal fat and lower liver fat, better blood lipid levels, lower cholesterol, triglycerides, also tends to lower your blood pressure as well. We think it's just because it eats some of the microbes, the bad microbes, keeps them down. And so it's acting as a sort of friendly predator in our guts. It turns out all our ancestors had blastocystis. It was found in ancient mummies, and it's found in everywhere in Africa and India. It's a sign of health. And we're rediscovering what good and bad bugs really mean. And interestingly, it seems to be correlated with countries' levels of ultra-processed foods, because in the US, it's only about 4 or 5% of the population have it. 
they're one of the few countries that have less healthy diet than we do in the UK. Probably, you know, maybe overused antibiotics as well. So, uh, yeah, so we need to rediscover our past and work out how we can get some of our ancestral microbes back because we've probably only got half the species that we used to have. So if people don't have this parasite, which presumably 75% of the UK population don't, are you suggesting that it could be useful for them to become infected with it? We don't know. Just completing this big global study of blastocystis to see how it works with my colleagues in Italy who are leading the work. It's just a, a brilliant example of just one parasite we've managed to find with the new gene technology that was being missed before. And there could be hundreds of other ones there that are there to help us if we, if we know where to look. Tim, another thing you mentioned, which we could try with our friends and family, is finding out how much of an enzyme we have that may help us control our weight. And it all involves eating a dry wheat cracker. It's not a fantastically reliable test, but I think it's a, a really good thought experiment for people to do to, to realise what's going on in their body you eat a, a dry cracker, put it in your mouth, and just chewing it, wait to see it until you, you feel the sugary taste in your mouth as the starch of the biscuit is converted into sugar. And that is done by a breakdown of an enzyme called amylase, which we all have in our saliva. And what was interesting is when we tested this in hundreds of twins, there's quite a lot of variability about when that starchy taste turns to sugar because we all have very different amounts of this enzyme in our in our mouth and it's a sign of how different we all are and it gives you an idea of why we digest things differently we taste things differently we can't assume that just because it affects even our you know brothers or sisters the same way it's going to affect us the same way so it's quite an interesting thing to do it turns out that in history there be various genes give some people lots of the amylase enzyme and others less of it. And that will break down, say, carbohydrates like pasta or, or bread slightly differently in those people. And that's evolved over time. So it's a nice way of showing this individuality of our biochemistry that is obviously interacting with our gut microbes in complicated ways. So the cracker test is there. Some people never get, you know, they're, they're chewing for like five minutes and uh, still never goes sweet. Others do get it quite quickly. It's a sort of fun experiment to do. And what does it show, Tim, if you get the sugar taste more quickly? Well, it shows you've got more amylase than average, so you're breaking it down quicker. This means that in general you will release the sugars faster and absorb more of that product so that for identical calorie some people will be extracting more of that energy earlier. Another reason we're sort of different when we're eating an identical cracker or potato or pasta dish. Some of us genetically, because of this, this amylase will absorb it quicker and others that sugar won't be broken down as quickly. and It will go to the lower intestine where it won't appear in the bloodstream and won't have the same effect. Took me about 90 seconds, I think, before I tasted any sugar. Okay, well, you're probably a slow sugar metabolizer. I don't think it's quite good enough to be a, a, a clinical test, but um, it's more a bit it, of sort of fun, it, really. It's, it's, more it a bit, it's more a bit of fun just to compare the family and see how they, they do. It's really nice to suddenly think, gosh, this is how my enzymes are working. It's different to someone else's. Going back, Tim, to this sort of, if you like, tip of the iceberg and all the information we don't know, 
you mentioned that actually in food there's around about 26,000 chemicals, but at the moment the data we have tends to focus only around 150. So there's a huge data gap there. Yes, massive. For every food, we always focus on one item in it. You know, resveratrol in wine, retinase in carrots to make us see more, allicin in, in garlic. And we forget that there's a thousand other chemicals in there that are having important effects. Has been our downfall, really. You know, we look at an orange, we only think about vitamin C in it, ascorbic acid. We don't think of all the other things that, that are going on. This idea that you can now measure food with these mass spectrophotometry machines is a bit like what we're doing with the genetics of, of the microbiome. We're exposing that all these foods are different. And it's showing us that the same food, but of different colors, has a different chemical composition. So purple sprouted broccoli is going to have a different composition to non-purple broccoli or green broccoli. Purple carrots are different to orange carrots, which are different to yellow carrots. Often these differences are increasingly important as we understand them. Some of those chemicals that make up those colours are particularly beneficial for us. One thing that does seem to be bad for us, Tim, is eating lots of ultra-processed foods, so ready-made meals. Can you explain what happens to our gut when we eat ultra-processed food? Yes, so 50% of the UK diet is ultra-processed food now. It's the highest in Europe. It's probably 70% in children. I think it's the number one health problem in the UK, and which no one is addressing, and no health minister ever uh, gets up and says anything about it. Ultra-processed food is food that is ultra-refined, and that means that it it's not in its natural state. So it's a combination of foods that are extracts of other foods, ground down, pulverized, high pressured, cooked, made in a factory, and then combined, again, using artificial methods of heat, pressure, cold, into something that resembles the original product. This means that when you eat it, you don't have any of the fiber, you don't have any of the, the casing of the plants, none of the structure that kept it together. So the sugars and the fats that you're eating are immediately absorbed into the body. This means that they get a large sugar peak, an insulin peak, and a few hours later, a, a large fat peak, both of which increase levels of infl inflammation in the body and cause stress on the body. What's remaining, and there's very little, goes through and is excreted. The things that are remaining there there's no fiber or very little, which normally microbes need to feed on. What they are feeding on is some of these other chemicals in there, things like emulsifiers and artificial sweeteners, which aren't normally digested or absorbed, and, and other gums and preservatives. And so the microbes interact with these non-natural substances and will react to them. Some Sometimes you might get an a strange uh, sugar peak, insulin will go up in response to, say, sucralose or saccharin for reasons we don't understand. It's not everybody. And the emulsifiers also may make your microbes stick together and cause them to produce abnormal chemicals, which sends signals to the rest of your body. So the combination of this inflammation, the extreme sugar peaks send signals to the brain saying, eat more of me, I'm not full, keep it coming mean that people who eat ultra-processed foods compared to identical whole foods will overeat by 10 or 20% in a day. So they won't feel full, they'll feel hungrier. And all these sugar peaks, etc., the inflammation makes them feel more tired 
and lose attention. So it's it's a combination of factors. We don't totally understand what's going on. There hasn't been much research in this, but increasingly we realize it's not about calories, fats and sugars. It's very much about the composition of the food, the quality of the food, all these extra things, the the 10 other ingredients that go in. So when we eat our food, first it goes into our small intestine. And the difference with ultra-processed food is that unlike whole foods, it tends to mostly be absorbed in the small intestine, whereas whole food will go all the way down to the colon. Yeah, hardly anything in ultra-processed food gets past the small intestine. Whole foods, where they've still got the corn's still got its husk on it and the seeds have still got everything on it, they're not digestible by the upper part and they they need the microbes to fully digest them. And that's really what we evolved as humans to have that kind of food. These artificial ones that really don't test our lower colon mean that the microbes get very denuded and people who are eating ultra-processed food diets have much poorer gut microbes, poorer gut health. As we saw in the COVID pandemic, people with poor quality diets ended up getting more severe COVID because their immune systems were also compromised. And this is basically the, the malaise that is in the UK population that not only affecting weight, diabetes at huge cost to the country, but probably affecting our immune systems and many other bits of the body as well. So people talk a lot, Tim, about something called leaky gut. And I think you've suggested that's not as common as people think. Yeah, I think it it's a concept that came about at the same time as people were talking about toxins in your body and again trying to oversimplify a very complicated process people put down a lot of problems with gut health with saying oh it's just the the barrier that's going wrong and so you're leaking out your microbes from your gut into your bloodstream and that's causing a reaction and i don't think there's a lot of evidence that happens but we do know that the gut lining is a really important barrier and we do know that in inflammation and uh, other diseases we you know which we mentioned earlier very often there is a a problem in the gut and people often have minor digestive problems because the inflammation itself might change the acidity or ph of the local area and cause some problems so i don't think gut leakiness is itself a diagnosis that's useful the whole of the gut can be inflammatory and can be caused by disease, but also can be helped by food. So I think it's been an overhyped term, and I think we need to focus more holistically on the whole of what's going on. But you do, I think, mention that in the book some cases where this happens, but it's just not as common as people have portrayed. Yes, no, absolutely. It, it certainly does happen. Leaky gut tends to be associated with this false idea of build-up of toxins, and I think that's very much a, this sort of medieval idea that hasn't really changed, that you purge the toxins and you're fine. And it comes from the old idea that the gut is really just this tube. We get rid of toxins every day very well. As a concept, cleansing yourself, deep cleanses, all this stuff, it's all, to me, nonsense. So one of your key recommendations for gut health is that we should eat 30 types of plants a week. I always cook from scratch and I think I eat pretty healthily, but I counted up what I ate last week and I'd only got to about 20. Oh, dear, you see. Um, <laughs> well, it's got to be a bit more imaginative. I mean, 20 is not bad, okay? So I think that's way above average. But aspirationally, 30 is not as hard as it seems if you sort of reconsider what a plant is. 
Most people say, oh, no, I can't eat all that kale, you know, I can't, and broccoli, you know, I can't imagine doing that. Remember, every, every seed and every nut is a different plant species. How about your herbs and your spices? Does it include dried spices? Uh, it does, yes. So studies have shown that a, a teaspoon of a spice mix a day has a really big effect on your gut microbe. We don't quite know, you know, what the minimum amounts are. In a way, the, the more you add to your food, the more you can get to that total. If I include dry spices, I can probably get to 25, 26. Yeah, well, again, you need to get a bigger seed mix, you know. Yeah. You can get out there, there's some nearly unlimited types of seeds and nuts you can have. So half of your intake can be seeds and nuts. You get 15 at least if you try hard. Little bits of dried fruits and other things that you can add to your breakfast or your salads. And again, herbs and spices, I think, do make it quite doable. And I now count coffee because that not only has fiber, but it's also got a good source of polyphenols as well. Some people include dark chocolate. I think it's a bit cheating. Uh, <laughs> and red wine because they are plant-based. It should be fun. The idea is, is this shouldn't be a, a penance. It should be, oh, let's go and find some new fruit and veg we haven't had before or something that's got a bit of a mixture in it. So as long as you're over 20 and you're on some good weeks, you're touching 30, then that's good for as far as I'm concerned. I think it's it's more the mentality that you're looking for something new when you go to eat out in a restaurant, you're looking for something, oh, unusual thing to eat. To move us away from the, the ruts we get when we're shopping, we're always filling the shopping trolley with the same stuff, although our supermarket has got 30,000 different items. But I guess, Tim, some people might say that's easy for people who are reasonably affluent, but actually eating all of these plants could be really expensive for some people. Could be, but a lot of the things that we were a bit dismissive of are actually very cheap and healthy. There's 10 different types of bean you can get in a can. Cans of mixed beans. Tomatoes in a can are probably healthier than fresh tomatoes for some of the, the key sources of lycopenes, etc. Frozen berries are just as good as fresh berries. There's lots of tricks, and I think we mustn't be snobbish about freezing. There's nothing wrong with using a microwave. And cans, really, for when it's the pure stuff, I'm not talking about canned soups or things, but... When you've got the pure vegetables in there, frozen or canned products are absolutely fine. So, yeah, I don't think you have to spend a fortune in some trendy greengrocers to, to do this. And frozen products allow you to have things out of season. One of the key things that makes plants so important is the polyphenols which are in them. Can you explain how those operate in the gut? Yeah, so polyphenols used to be called this vague term of antioxidants before we really knew what they did. That just means mopping up debris and unwanted things from the cell. It turns out that polyphenols are defense chemicals in plants that protect them against the weather, the wind, insects, and a harsh environment. And so they're given a slight bitter taste, and they're often on the, the growing tips of plants or the more, more colorful bits, the young part of the plant or the outside of leaves that needs the most protection, the bits we often throw away. High levels in, in small seeds that need to nourish are important for growth. When we eat them, they go through to our lower intestine because they're generally bound up with fiber, not broken down early on, and they interact with our gut microbes who use them like fuel. Our body can't process them, most of them directly. They need the microbes to use them as energy, and then they produce other chemicals in return, which are particularly important for our immune system. So there's a clear correlation between high polyphenol foods 
that improve our gut microbiome and then improving our, our immunity. So multiple colors means you're getting lots of different types of polyphenols. And again, it's all about this diversity. The greater the diversity of the fertilizer of your microbes, the more you'll be encouraged to grow and be healthy. Well, one of the issues that you raised is that fruit and veg can lose much of its polyphenols during storage. So what's the best way that we can store food to protect its nutritional value? It's hard to have these strict rules. They do vary quite a lot. Freezing generally does store polyphenols pretty well, actually. I was, I was surprised when I dug into that. So getting something fresh, and if you can't eat it within a few days, freezing it is, is often an option. And that's why sometimes frozen peas might actually be a better bet than buying peas by the time you've got to it, maybe a week or so old. And there's a number of examples like that. There weren't many foods that were still sort of edible and had lost their polyphenol counts completely. So if you start by getting high polyphenol foods in the first place, you eat them before they go rotten, you're not going to do too badly. And I suppose the other thing is how we prepare the food, because presumably if we're boiling vegetables, we're going to lose a lot of the nutritional value. Yeah, so if you've stored them right, you've got to be really careful. That's a really good point. Old-fashioned way, English boiling cabbage and things that we used to have at school is a disaster. You're basically sucking all the goodness out of it and it all ends up in the water that you throw away. So for virtually all the vegetables to retain the nutrients, you want to either lightly steam them or stir fry them. There are several examples where you actually get more polyphenols by combining some of these foods as well. Generally, adding things like tomatoes and onions and olive oil will give you cumulatively greater amounts of healthy nutrients than doing them individually. So again, it comes back to this desire of mixing your your foods as much as possible. So yeah, unless you're making soup, forget the boiling and just lightly steaming, you know, with just the smallest possible amount of water and you cook it for a minimum amount of time. So it's just al dente for virtually all the foods, you're going to guarantee getting the maximum polyphenol nutrients from it. One thing you're really keen on, Tim, is eating vegetables in fermented forms. Yes. So you've got these amazing vegetables and you can increase their health benefit by adding more microbes to them, fermenting them naturally with microbes that are actually on the plants there that you you bring out when you just add salted water to them. A great thing to do with leftovers in your fridge. Just takes 10 minutes to chop it all up, uh, add 2% salt pack it down and leave it in a kilner jar and you've suddenly got amazing sauerkraut or kimchi. Also get healthy microbes, probiotic microbes, but you also get even more nutrients from those plants. So super fan of fermenting. And a great example of why fermenting works is if you take red wine or grape juice, both derive the polyphenols from the skin of the grape, but you get about 10 times more with red wine than grape juice because the alcohol is part of the fermenting process and it breaks down more so you get many more different chemicals much more complexity and that's why fermented food has this extra complexity of flavor as well and tim in your book you have recipes for sauerkraut and kimchi are you happy for us to pass those on to our listeners absolutely i want everybody to be getting into fermenting and get back these forgotten arts that we should all be using that's great tim thanks so much So for everyone signed up to the current mailing list or signed up by the end of the week, I'll send out the sauerkraut and kimchi recipes next Monday. The story for some other foodstuffs seems more confusing. 
For example, some people seem much more able to tolerate dairy than others. Yes. I mean, I think we've got to realise that humans have evolved to eat the foods, you know, wherever they live, whether on the equator or in the Arctic. We've had some quite selective genetic changes to us. And we know that dairy products in particular, we weren't designed to eat until we started traveling north with dairy herds. The ones that were successful developed a genetic mutation allowing us to break down milk. And so it didn't make us sick when we were adults. We all have that gene as babies, which allows us to, to drink mother's milk and, and survive. We used to lose it uh, as adults. And so Europeans and some Middle Eastern tribes basically got this mutation that gave them a survival advantage. And there's still big differences around the world, even in Europe, between the North and the South, in terms of uh, how well we break down milk products. So it's quite normal. Some people do not like milk, others to love it, and feel there's a difference in, in our guts. It's not universal. There are some people who still drink small amounts of milk, although they lack the enzymes. Some of this depends also on the other microbes you've got. We had some good examples of identical twins which have the same genes. One was fine with dairy, the other one wasn't. So I think there are other factors in play, not just genetics. Have we gone too far with thinking that dairy milk is unhealthy and moving towards plant milks? One of the things that shocked me in the book was you mentioned that we're now seeing iodine deficiencies in teenage girls that we haven't seen since the 19th century. Yeah, I've changed my view on milks just since I was writing the book, interestingly. I'd been through pretty every stage of milk. As a kid, I was given full fat milk. When the sort of anti-fat revolution came in, I was skimmed or semi-skimmed, and then I was told to give it up by an acupuncturist said it was really bad for sinusitis and uh, gave it up and then started having it again, semi-skimmed. And then I, I changed to oat milks, and I thought they were healthier for me and found that they gave me sugar spikes, so more than regular milk. So if I had a small glass of oat milk, it put me up in a sort of pre-diabetic range because it doesn't have the same fats as regular milk. It's got these starches in there. And for some people, that's really unhealthy. Milk has come and gone in, in popularity massively over the time. For me, it's pretty neutral. I think it's a useful drink for kids to give them essential nutrients, particularly if they don't have a full rounded diet. For adults, I'm not sure there's any major benefits or particular harms in moderation. But I'm not sure we should be swapping that for ultra-processed milk alternatives, which for some people are bad for their health. But in the case of these teenage girls, if they're not getting their, their iodine from the milk, they need to be getting it at least somewhere else. Yes. Particularly girls often have very poor diets. It's not very well-rounded. And so that's where milk can make up a big nutritional gap. Realise that these alternatives, they don't do as well as nature in terms of giving us all these hidden nutrients we didn't think were, were important. And that's a very good example. The equivalent teenagers in Holland don't have these problems because they drink milk much more as part of their culture. But I think it, it's just one of these dangers of having a knee-jerk reaction as we switch from butter to margarine or from milk to milk alternatives or from good quality meat to highly processed meat alternatives. There's always a potential downside we need, we need to be much more thoughtful about. But I suppose margarine was all part of our obsession with the low-fat diet, which, as we know, was based on at least some faulty data. 
And while trans fats have been removed from margarine, you also mentioned estified fats, which you think may also be problematic, which are now margarine instead. Yes, margarines have got more healthy, definitely. Clever food scientists have created other ways of making these liquid fats solid. This rather than hydrogenation, which was the problem with the old margarines, it's called interesterification, very complex uh, chemical process that until we have much longer follow-up times and, and more focus on exactly how they measure safety in these things, I think we should be wary of the miracle approach. And currently, I don't see the need for people to change the butter to margarine because butter in moderation, I think, is, again, pretty neutral. But I'm not saying I would cook with lots of it. I think there's evidence that in countries where half the country cooks with butter and half with olive oil, like in France, for example, the north and the south, the olive oil cookers do a lot better. And knowing what we now know, do we need to have much more focus in medical training, continuing medical education about the role that food plays in our health? Absolutely. I mean, it's a a complete disgrace that medical students still today only get a couple of hours on nutrition. When they do get talked on nutrition, most of it is actually biochemistry. And so the average medical student knows much more about scurvy than they do about obesity. It's still really poorly taught, as is all lifestyle medicine, really. The training is all dominated by surgery and tablets. Doctors are really good at both of those things, and they are real experts, but they just haven't been exposed in their training to these other aspects, which have much greater potential to prevent disease and save lives than these sort of remedial ones. What's worse is I, I meet specialists who are training in diabetes. They're in a five-year, four or five-year training program, and they are literally only getting one day's training on nutrition. And these are people that are advising overweight patients about their diet. They know nothing about it. And yet they know everything about how to operate on diabetics and manipulating insulin doses. So our whole mentality is wrong. And still no one's being trained on the microbiome either. So it's it's a very depressing state of affairs. So we just have to hope that some of these big impacts, like I was talking about cancer therapies, etc., will force oncology doctors to start having to learn themselves about diets and how to advise because they want their patients to survive and that will have a a knock-on effect. It's not just doctors, all the health professionals really need to take this much more seriously. But Tim, does this not come down partly to who funds various aspects of training? I mean, two-thirds of continuing medical education is funded, for example, by the pharmaceutical industry. Yes, exactly right. And of course, the system of training is so traditional, it just needs to be broken up. They're still quite happy to promote the fact that exercise is a good way of weight loss, which it isn't. Someone needs to say, well, I don't mind what you do, but you, you've got to devote at least 10% of medical training to lifestyle. But why we're still teaching so much rote learning in medicine, where people can get that knowledge later, detailed knowledge of biochemistry and anatomy you know i just don't think it's fit for purpose now we we need much more practical skills for the next generation of doctors i think the thing is tim what we've been talking about in some quarters is still seen as a bit sort of fringe yeah there's still a stigma and there isn't a training program it just doesn't exist anywhere it's even been hard for doctors to train in microbiome because they they've seen a slightly alternative it's a very traditional area nutrition is a new science 
doesn't didn't have a lot of support, treat as very much an inferior partner. So we have to change that. But I think the way to do that is you know, not beating a stick. It's just saying, well, actually, nutrition is probably the most exciting science and we should get people wanting to do it. One of the other projects you've been involved in is setting up a personalised nutrition company called Zoe. Now, one of the things this podcast always does is to make clear when someone has a financial interest. So before we talk about Zoe, can I ask, are you currently making income from it? Uh I don't yet, but I, I'm hoping to at some point. But there's two aspects to Zoe. One is selling these personalised nutrition kits. And the other is what was, was the Zoe COVID study, which was this citizen science project, which we've transformed from just from COVID into lifestyle interventions. Can you explain a little bit more about what you've been doing? Yes. So I co-founded Zoe with two of my colleagues. And Zoe is a personalized nutrition company designed to use tests and algorithms to work out what foods are best for your body. And so you can eat in a way that reduces your sugar peaks, your fat peaks, and optimize your gut microbiome. That's a commercial enterprise, but everyone who joins up also signs a research agreement so that we can use everyone's data for research. And we publish a lot in the top journals. 45,000 people have now done those studies And so we have probably the world's biggest collection now of gut microbiome data linked to food data, which is giving us some great insights like the blastocystis story, which we're going to be publishing shortly. But the other side of the company happened when COVID struck and we wanted to be able to find out what was going on. So the engineers from the company in five days built a free app that was used by millions of people during COVID. We've got about four and a half million people gave us their data for the last few years. We've been interacting with those people on COVID, reporting in real time what the levels were way ahead of the government. Nine months ago, the government pulled out of its funding and commercial companies Zoe continued to fund it. And as well as continuing to do COVID, continuing to do flu and cold rates, we are now doing community intervention studies. So the idea is that many of these lifestyle suggestions from lifestyle gurus that this is a good thing to do, whether it's having a cold shower in the morning or running on the spot for two minutes or going to bed 30 minutes earlier, or the one we're doing now is doing time-restricted eating, trying to eat the same food, but in a, a smaller time window, have never been tested in large numbers of people. So this is the point of this mass experiment, which is totally free is to get everybody to do the same experiment at the same time so we can really work out who it works for, who it doesn't, separate the hype from reality and see how it works in a real-life situation out of a laboratory setting. What's really exciting is we've got already 60,000 people have measured their own blood pressure, and we're going to look at that long-term. We've got about 65,000 people have joined this time-restricted eating study, which we call the Big If Study. And all they have to do is download a free app called the Zoe Health Study app. We want as many people to join as possible, see if it works for them. And even if it doesn't, it's going to help science and we'll all find out much more about it. So if listeners want to join this, Tim, do you want to give the address of the website? Well, for the Zoe Health Study, you can go to the website, which is joinzoe.com, or simply go onto your phone, whether it's Android or Apple, download the app Zoe Health Study. And you just join straight away then. The app is probably the easiest way to do that. And be one of the these amazing citizen scientists. 
this is just the first of a number of experiments. So we'll have other ones if you don't fancy this one as well. Tim, thank you very much indeed for sparing the time to talk today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Bye. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the podcast. Many thanks for listening. And a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker and sign up to the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. In the next episode, I'm talking to psychiatrist Professor David Healy about the remarkable claim he made in a recent BMJ rapid response, alleging that more people have died on active treatment than on placebos in antidepressant trials, which have been submitted to the regulator of the FDA. So just what does the trial data actually tell us? Do join me in the next podcast to find out more. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now.